right. Good morning, everyone. Such a gift to worship with you. If you're new to our congregation, welcome. My name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. And at the end of our service, I'll be downstairs in the lobby area with some of our pastors and leaders. If we've never met before, if we've never connected, please make your way to me and to our team. We would love to connect with you before you head out of this building. Before we get into our text today, just a point of celebration over in Long Island, New Life Fellowship East is celebrating our two-year anniversary today. And so we praise God for the witness of the church uh, in Long Island through New Life Fellowship. And, and so if you are friends with Pastor Dre and Pastor Red on social media, offer some words of encouragement because the work that they're doing is really wonderful over in Nassau County. Um, We've been in a series of teachings uh, through a a series entitled Life Beneath the Surface. And really the essence of the series has been oriented around uh, integrating and connecting our interior life with our exterior life. The goal of the series has been to build a strong spirituality without denying our humanity. And it's very easy in the name of Jesus, it's very easy in uh, as church-going people to deny our humanity, believing that God doesn't care about that part of us, that God wants this kind of spiritual side of us. But what we've been trying to say throughout the course of this series is that it all matters. And so we've talked about the emotional life of Jesus. We've talked about anger and anxiety. We've talked about grief. We've talked about solitude and Sabbath as the rhythms and the containers to help us look deep beneath the surface of our lives. And today we're going to wrap up our series with a topic that not too many people want to talk about. We're going to talk about the impact of the past on our present and our future. We're going to talk about the ways that our families, the families that we grew up in, the family of origin that we're from, shapes the ways that we live in the world in ways that are inconsistent with the family of Jesus. And when I think about a message like this today, and I think about preaching in general, someone asked me a question on social media. Someone said, hey, how would you, what's the goal of preaching? And when I think about preaching and thinking about worship and why we gather together as the people of God, there are two words that come to mind, encounter and formation. In a message like this, I believe that the risen Jesus wants to encounter you in a fresh way. That Jesus Christ is alive from the dead. That he is here through his spirit. And he wants to set you on a new trajectory. God wants to meet you in some areas in your life that are broken. Areas in your life that are wounded. Areas of your life in which you are stuck. Our Lord Jesus Christ wants to meet you right here, right now. And at the same time, preaching and worship is the ongoing, slow and steady work of formation. And so when I think about a topic like what we're going to address today, for some of you, maybe you have heard some of this before, but God wants to meet you once again in the slow and steady process of formation, having the character of Jesus shape our lives. And so we're going to look at a passage of scripture today. Out of the book of Exodus, chapter 34, you can follow along in your Bible, on your devices, or on the screen. Exodus, chapter 34, we'll begin in verse number 4, hear the word of the Lord. It says, So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Just a quick announcement over the season of Lent. We're going to spend six weeks on that one remarkable verse. He continues, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gifts of worship, the gift of song, the gift of music, the gift of Holy Scripture. And now I pray you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive all you have for us this day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. As I get older, I find that I have a particular struggle that I don't know if it's ever going to change. I could actually foresee the older I get, the worse this problem is going to happen and occur. The struggle is very frustrating, and the struggle is that I increasingly lose my eyeglasses. I increasingly lose my eyeglasses and some of my favorite books and my car keys, and my sneakers, and all the rest. There are times when I'm walking around in my house going, where is my fill-in-the-blank? Anyone else like that here? It's just like, where's my stuff there? But thank God that I have a wise and godly wife who offers just helpful perspective and proverbs to help me in my distress whenever I'm thinking about a missing article, my favorite uh, sneakers or whatever it is. Rosie has a way of just saying one phrase that maybe you've said before, maybe you've heard before. It is very simply, have you retraced your steps? Have you retraced your steps? And basically what she's getting at is, can you go back to what you were doing? Can you revisit the places where you were? Can you go back? Can you try to remember where you have been? And basically that little advice is to help kind of trigger our subconscious, help to trigger, oh yeah, that's what I remember. How did my keys end up in the microwave? I have no clue, but that's what I was doing when I last saw my keys. And that's a good principle for us as we think about keys and sunglasses and eyeglasses and our favorite books and our sneakers, but it's also a wonderful phrase for the spiritual life. It's also a wonderful phrase for what it means to be human because from time to time, things go missing in our lives. From time to time, things that we once had somehow go missing. And when we think about our own lives, there's lots of things that have gone missing in our lives. For some of you, peace has gone missing from your life. For some of you, joy has gone missing from your life. For some of you, the ability to emotionally connect with someone has gone missing from your life. And the age-old wisdom before us is to retrace our steps. Where have we been? How has the past impacted our future? And that's the invitation that God has for us today. And yet, for some of us, to actually do this work is very difficult. The wisdom of going back to go forward is a paradox. And when I think about Christianity, you cannot understand Christianity without understanding how radically paradoxical it is. A paradox is a statement that on the surface seems to be a contradiction. But when you look beneath the surface, you realize there's hidden wisdom here. So for example, a paradox in Christianity says that if you want to be the least, if you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. 
that if you want to be first, you have to be last. And Christianity, at its core, what we're going to get at today, also simply says, if you want to go forward, you're going to have to learn how to go backwards. And yet, for many Christians, this is really hard because we believe that if we are in Christ, we should not think about the past any longer. We believe that if we're in Christ, we don't have to look at what's happened in the past. As a matter of fact, we have Bible verses to justify this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. And so we have verses like this to justify not looking at our past. Or we say something like, remember Lot's wife. That's in the Bible as well. And when Lot's wife turned back, she turned into a pillar of salt. And we say, you don't want to turn into a pillar of salt. Don't look back. Press on forward. And yet there is lots of truth in that scripture. When Paul says we are, we are new creations in Christ Jesus, he's effectively saying that we have been forgiven by, our, by, his, by, by Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We have a new pathway forward. But this is what I also know to be true. Our sins can be forgiven, and yet the family that formed us still remains in us. Which is why at New Life, over the many years, we've said Jesus lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. Because we have received positive legacies and negative legacies from our families of origin. When I think about my own family, my family has given me positive legacies. And at the same time, my family has offered me negative legacies, legacies that are inconsistent with the family of Jesus. And as a parent, I have given our children, we have given our children positive legacies, and yet at the same time, no matter how much I've studied, no matter how much work I've done, I realize still that I have handed down my children negative legacies that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. No matter how hard I've tried... I'm still handing it down because of sin, because we still have gaps in our lives, because we're not going to be perfect and whole until Jesus Christ fully and finally reigns. And yet what happens before us is this. We have a hard time looking back. And yet, here's the truth that I want us to hold on to, a truth in two different statements. The first truth is very simply this, that to live beneath the surface requires us to look behind at our stories. To look beneath the surface of our lives requires us to look behind at our stories. That discipleship, what is discipleship? Discipleship is just a word that means following Jesus. Following Jesus requires us to address the ways our families have shaped us in ways inconsistent with the family of Jesus. And our text today offers us some very sobering words as we think about our past's impact on our present. Look at the text again. Verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now, the family is in um, is the most powerful and except in very rare instances the most formative group that we will ever belong to the family unit growing up is the most powerful group of people that we will ever belong to Whatever the nature of that family system looks like, that is the most powerful group we will ever belong to. Have you ever considered, how can something that happened when I was seven 
and 8 and 9 and 10 still impact me when I'm 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80? How is it possible that something that happened in my formative years growing up still remains deep inside my subconscious, deep inside my soul's? What we're reminded of is that the family, the family unit, whatever that looked like, is the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Which is why you can't really understand someone until you see them in their family. This is good. Listen, if you're dating someone, I got, I got good advice for you right now. If you're dating someone, you want to see that person in the context of their family as much as you can. Amen, somebody. Why? <laughs> because you don't really know them until you see them in that context. Mm -hmm. Some of you are like, it's too late, it's too late. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry. I got another sermon for you next week. But, but, but here's some good advice if you're dating. See them in that environment because that's who they really are in that context. That's who they've been really formed by. And so if you really want to know someone, you have to understand the context that has formed them, the context that has shaped them. And so when Moses talks about the, the sins and blessings of our families, he's getting at some really important theology, and yet I need to make a really quick point so to, to alleviate some of your stress as I read that text. Now, Mo, Paul says, uh, Moses says that, that the sins of the, fa of the fathers are handed down to the next generation, to the third and fourth generation. But there's an important Hebrew word that an Old Testament scholar by the name of Monfred Brock translated. He said that the word punish, God punishes, really, the Hebrew word really should be read the consequences, which is to say that the children often experience the consequences of the sins of the fathers. Do you hear me? The, the, the children often experience the consequences of the sins of their fathers and their mothers. And so Moses is saying something that's really painful to embrace, but true to our experience. That the patterns that characterize our parents and our grandparents has a way of being passed down to the next generation. Now, this is something we observe in our families. We see generational patterns, generational sins. Whether it be patterns of divorce, whether it be patterns of abuse, patterns of addictive behavior, patterns of financial mishandling, patterns of an inability to have stable relationships. What we find in our own lives, in our own experience, is that the blessings and the sins of our fathers and mothers have impact lasting three to four generations. We actually see this in the book of Genesis. God calls Abraham to himself and he says, I want you to, 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 to be a family that blesses the world, a family that's going to bless the nations. And God's hand was on Abraham in some significant ways. And what we see as the book of Genesis unfolds is patterns and sins that are repeated from one generation to the next. For example, in the story of Abraham and his family, what we find is a pattern of lying that's evident in each generation. Abraham lies twice about Sarah, denying that she is his wife in two particular contexts. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage is characterized by lies. Jacob, his name means deceiver in this context here. Joseph's ten brothers lie about him, fake the wake, mourning, funeral, burial, all the rest. What we find from one generation to the next in the book of Genesis is that a pattern of lying. We also find a pattern of favoritism. 
that at least one parent in each generation has a favorite child. Abraham favors Ishmael. Isaac favors, uh, Isaac favors Esau. Jacob favors Joseph and later Benjamin. And this favoritism leads to all kinds of conflicts. We also find patterns of sibling rivalry, cutoffs. We see cutoffs between Isaac and Ishmael, sibling rivalry that's continued to this day in what we find in the Middle East. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his 10 brothers. We are all products of a broken past. We are all products of broken families. And here's the news that I hope would put you all at ease. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of us watching online, we have come from broken families. There's no one exempt from it. Not perfect. We all have broken families that have impacted us in ways, positive legacies, yes, but have also negatively impacted us in ways that are inconsistent with the way of Jesus. And this is the part of the story of our lives where we can fall into despair. I imagine some of you came to church today, some of you watching online, and you're wondering to yourself, will things ever change? Some of you came to church today and you realized these are the patterns of my family. Why do they persist in my own life? Some of you promised yourself, I will never become like fill in the blank. And next thing you know, you are responding in a way like the person you promised you would never respond like. There's sins, there's patterns, there's wounds that have been passed from one generation to the next. And you wonder, is this my life? Am I doomed to repeat this cycle year after year, generation after generation? And some of you came into church today feeling hopeless, feeling despair, wondering if there's any good news for you. And I just need to pause for a moment to celebrate that there is indeed good news for you if you are holding on to that reality. And the good news of the gospel is that God's grace covers our past. And God would also give us the strength through His Spirit to create a new story, to create a new reality that regardless of our past, God's grace is stronger. And when we look at the biblical story, what we begin to see is a God who works with people who have a messed up past. Praise God for that. All we find in the Bible, God does not work with people who are righteous and and never had a bad day in their life and always prayed and, and always chose the path of love and mercy and compassion. God has a way of working with people who have a broken past. This is why I love the Bible, because the Bible is not a collection of sanitized stories about holy people of God who never made a mistake. The Bible is a collection of stories of broken human beings who are made righteous by a power outside of themselves. And this is the good news for us because God works with broken people. Look at the story of the Bible. Uh, Paul was a persecutor. Jonah ran from the will of God. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. Noah had a drinking problem. On and on and on, what we find in the Bible are broken people. And to find the God who loves to work in and through them. And what we're invited into is to see the invitation 
of what it means to be formed by Jesus. Discipleship, that is, following Jesus, simply means that we are invited to put off the sinful patterns of our families of origin and to put on the family of Jesus. To put, to, to put off our, the, the negative legacies of our families of origin and to put on the family of Jesus. And this is a process. I believe that God can do in a moment what it will take years of willpower to accomplish. And so I believe in the encounter of, of, of the Lord. And later today, at the end of the message, we're going to give a moment for God to do something by His Spirit. And this is a process. There's something that can happen in the moment, and then there's a process. The slow and steady process of Jesus forming us and reforming us into his image. What is the invitation to be birthed into a new family? That's what being a Christian is. A Christian is not you simply having an individual relationship with God. To become a Christian is to be birthed into a new family. And so when we baptize someone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they come out of the water, this is not just a, a personal thing that we're doing with Jesus. We are being baptized into a new family, where they're new brothers and sisters, where God is Abba, where we have an inheritance now, a family inheritance that God has offered us, but it is a new family. It doesn't mean that we forsake and ignore the, our old family. No, we love them, we treasure them, but what we are invited into is to take our points, to take our cues of how we show up in the world from the family of Jesus. And one of the ways that we've tried to help new lifers over the years do this is by identifying the ways that we've been formed by our families. You have been formed by your family in ways that continue to be repeated over and over and over again. And one of the things that we've done over the course of our years as a congregation is to point people to understanding the ways that they've been formed, to take a good look at their family dynamic, to take a good look of the ways that you have been impacted and the ways that you hand that down to the next generation and what it means to walk in the way of repentance and following of Jesus. At New Life, we use a tool called a genogram. And a genogram, very simply, think of it as a family tree, but it's a family tree that helps to understand the relationships, the dynamics, the impact of our family of origin. And over the years, in different contexts, I have shown my genogram on the screen. And I'm going to show it again for some of you who might need to see it again, and some of you for the first time. When I think about my own family of origin, and this does not tell the full story of it, but it does speak about the brokenness of the family that I was born into. I came from a very loving Puerto Rican household, a very loving, uh, 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 jubilant, uh, 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 emotional, uh, affectionate family. I, I saw one of my cousins last weekend and, I, and gave him a hug. I hadn't seen him in a little while. And, and the hugs, they just kept coming. Every, every, come on, let's bring it in again, man. I mean, very affectionate, very loving. And yet, this beautiful family that I was born into had some significant gaps. I think about the legacies of my family. My grandfather became a follower of Jesus in his 40s, had a radical conversion. I've talked about the impact of my grandfather's mentoring on my life when I became a follower of Jesus. But this is what I also know about my grandfather, that he was an alcoholic as well. Before coming to Christ, he had some significant gaps in his life. 
And then he came to Jesus, and Jesus began to do some significant work in him. But by the time he became a follower of Jesus, there was an environment that was created. There was a culture that became normative. And many of his sons, tragically, would succumb to alcoholism as well. Many of his sons would succumb to drug addiction. My mother has six brothers and five sisters, the 12 tribes of Puerto Rico, right on the side here. (laughs) And we have seen great joy and great pain. Five of six of her brothers have died, my uncles, at a very young age, in their 30s, in their 40s, my age, because of alcoholism, because of drug addiction. This is, the, this is the, the beautiful and the painful family that I was brought into. What we find and the patterns of my family are so many different things, failed marriages and drug abuse and parentified children, which is to say children that are very young but have to do the, ha- carry the emotional weight of parenting, even at a very young age. Cutoffs and unresolved conflicts. And this family here has impacted in positive ways and in negative ways the way that I show up in the world, the way that I interact with other people. And this family that I was born into, I've needed to repent in certain areas and turn to Jesus and his family. And so when I think about our genogram, there there are really three words that that I want to highlight to you to help us do an inventory of what's happening inside of us to open up space for the gospel to transform us in some new ways. There are three words that the genogram speaks to. The genogram speaks to patterns, traumas, and scripts. Patterns, traumas, and scripts. Patterns, these are the behaviors that are repeated from one generation to the next. And we all have them. We all have stuff that's repeated. It might not look exactly the same, but there are just patterns that are repeated, and it makes lots of sense, especially when the family is recognized as the most powerful environment to which we will ever belong to. And some of you have had patterns that have been repeated year after year, generation after generation, that Jesus wants to address. For some of us, it's been traumas. What's trauma? It's wounded. We, We all carry wounds in one way or another. When I think about trauma, it's it's a word that speaks to something happened to you that should not have happened. Or something did not happen that should have. For example, some of you grew up in homes in which there was lots of distress. Homes in which there was lots of uncertainty, lots of disorientation. And you as a child had no place to go to be held. You as a child had no place to go for someone to be attentive to you in your pain. You had to self-soothe. You had to figure it out yourself. And because something didn't happen that should have happened, we walk around with gaps in our lives, with deficiencies in our lives. And so no matter who you are, some of you say, well, I've never experienced trauma. I've never experienced some, 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 some uh, you know, crazy violation of a boundary. And yet at the same time, that might be true, but there's still other gaps in our lives. And that... Those patterns and those traumas lead to these scripts, these internalized messages that whether someone outright said it to you or whether you somehow interpreted this subconsciously, they're scripts that live inside each of us. 
when I think about my own scripts and my own internalized messages, I think about a particular story in my own childhood that I've written about and I've talked about, but I think it bears repeating. My parents have been married now almost 46 years. God has done a remarkable work in them and through them. When I look at them today and I see their affection for one another, when I see the ways that they're bonding with each other, the ways that they're tagging each other on Facebook all the time and, 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 and all these kind of beautiful hashtags and all the rest, I'm really grateful to God because that wasn't always their story. God has done a remarkable work. And yet there were times of significant brokenness within my parents that I and my siblings have been impacted by. I think about one moment in particular. I'm, I'm about 11 or 12 years of age. And my father um, didn't want to go to work on a particular day. And so I overhear my father say, I'm not going to work. And that was a day, I don't know exactly what was happening within my parents' family dynamic, but my mother was really triggered by that statement of him not going to work. I listened to my father, oh, dad's staying home. So my mother comes to me and says, it's time to go to school. And I say, I'm not going to school. (laughs) Which I just wanted to hang out with dad. And you should have seen the look she gave me as a 12-year-old. It wasn't her best day. She goes back to my father's room, and they start having a little discussion, a little intense conversation. And it got to a point where she throws a pillow at him, he throws a pillow back at her, she shoves him, he pushes her onto the bed, and she falls on my one-year-old sister, Melissa, at the time. I run into the bedroom and I carry my sister Melissa in my arms. And I stand between my mother and my father. And somehow in that moment, there was a story, a message, a script that I felt was etched into my soul. And that message was, I have to hold everything together. I have to hold everything together. And that became a significant script that would shape my life. Other scripts that I were impacted by were were scripts like, don't make mistakes. Don't be sad. Don't get angry. Therefore, don't confront anyone. Do you see why I became a pastor now? Do you see why I became a pastor? This is, this is. (laughs) These messages live deep inside of me. And by the grace of Jesus, I've made some significant progress in these areas, and yet they remain etched in me. Don't make mistakes. I I, I saw failure growing up. I saw wounds. I saw problems. And so I thought, I have to hold it all together, therefore I can't make mistakes. And so whenever I get corrected, it's a deep thing for me. I remember the first time I preached at New Life Fellowship, I preached a sermon, and at the end of the sermon, there was something that was already in the culture of new life, that whenever a preacher speaks here, after the first service, we gather around with another pastor in our church, and we talk about the sermon and ways that we can improve it for the next service. Sounds like a pretty good practice, yes? And so I, did, I wasn't aware of this practice. And our founding pastor, Pastor Pete, At the end of the lobby, I'm greeting people, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing all the things. And he says, hey, Rich, let's chat in the yellow room for a second. And I go, for what? What are we chatting in the yellow room for? (laughs) And he brings me into the yellow room and goes, 
um, let's talk about your sermon. I'm thinking, what do you mean talk about my sermon? It's like, this is, I just gave the word of the Lord. Like, what, what do we need to debrief and talk about? What, 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 and, he, and he says, you know, do you know what you can do? And deep down in my soul, I wanted to say, do you know what you can do, man? Do you know what you can do? <laughs> I couldn't say that. He was my boss at the time. I couldn't say it at the time. I can say it now, but I couldn't say it back then. And, and he was offering very gently a word that would help me in the short term and in the long term. But something was etched in me. Why are you so defensive? Why is your soul so fragile when something emerges? Why do I have a hard time being sad? Why? Because there's something from my past that has now given me this set of messages of how I'm supposed to show up in the world. And, and it's not just these, there are many others. When I think about our congregation, and think about the messages that live inside of us. There are a whole lot of messages that live inside of us. Messages like, keep it in the family. Messages like, don't rock the boat. Messages like, my voice doesn't matter. My needs don't matter. I'm a failure. Don't show weakness to anyone. Always have a smile on your face. Don't ask for help. Every one of us in this room, there lives in you little messages. It might be a little phrase that dominates the way you show up in the world. A little phrase that dominates your interactions with others. A little phrase that dominates yourself and your life whenever failure emerges. And what Jesus wants to do is give us a new set of scripts. Amen to give us a new set of messages that we can live into. And this one thing is certain, friends. The evil one would love for you to keep repeating the sins of your family. The evil one would love to see you continue living out those negative scripts. The evil one would love to see you as a slave to your past. But we confess as the people of God today, we confess as people who believe in the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that our past, amen, does not have to determine our future. That God's love covers our past. And God gives us grace for the moment. And God gives us grace for the future. And that's how we are supposed to really interpret 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is past. The new has come. When Paul says that, he's not saying do everything you can to avoid your past. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that your past does not have to determine your future. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, amen, a new story is being written. If you are in Christ Jesus, new possibilities are before you. If you are in Christ Jesus, there's a new reality that is at your disposal. If you are in Christ Jesus, the old is past and the new has come. That God is at work right at this very moment. And there's a story that powerfully illustrates this in the Bible. I've already talked about Abraham and his sons. And there's one story in particular that bears repeating before we worship. In the book of Genesis, we have the story of the 12 sons of Jacob, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. There was Joseph, the 11th out of the 12th son, who for whatever reason was favored by his father. 
His father gave him a special outfit. He was favored by his father. Moreover, this Joseph had a prophetic gift. God spoke to him in dreams. But in his youthfulness and immaturity, he decides to tell his brothers the dream that God gave him. The dream that God gave him was that his brothers one day would bow to him. Now, if you want an early death, tell your siblings, one day you're going to all bow at my feet. You want a diary early? Just say, you know, I just see it in your future. You're going to be bowing at my feet. And so Joseph in his immaturity, Joseph in his zeal, it was a true vision. But he tells his brother without any filter, you're all, I saw a vision, you're all going to bow at me. And they did not take it well. They did not. Can you, are you shocked? They could not take it well. And so what did they do? They sold him into slavery. They faked a funeral. I mean, they got very creative here. They just said, you know, mom and dad are going to be really upset here. Let's just tell him that he died. Let's fake the funeral, a burial, everything. And that's what they did. But Joseph was sent off as a slave in Egypt. Joseph would be incarcerated. But in his incarceration, the gift that God had given him was still there. God had given him a legitimate gift to have dreams and visions, to help people interpret dreams. And because of that gift, Joseph would be promoted. Over and over, he keeps getting promoted, 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 to he becomes the right hand of Pharaoh. He has so much power now to determine how the world should operate, to determine who should get resources and who should not get resources. And then a number of years later, there's a famine in the land and his brothers are hungry. There's nowhere to go to eat except Egypt. And so they journey to Egypt and bow to their brother who has all the resources available to feed them. And his brother did not, Joseph did not say, I told you you would die at my feet. No, he offers grace and compassion and mercy and he feeds them. And then Joseph says this statement, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is the mystery of the sovereignty of God. This is the mystery of faith, that God has a way of turning dark things into a bright future. Listen, I don't know why you experienced the pain you did growing up. I don't know why you might have been abused. I don't know why you were born into the family you were born into. I don't know why you have come to endure suffering that has come your way. But this is what I can say to you. In spite of your past, God can build a future out of it. God wastes nothing. God can work with Anything. God can work with anyone. God can work with any 
hand that you've been dealt. And so some of you come into church and say, Pastor Rich, if you only knew my childhood. Pastor Rich, if you only knew the neighborhood I grew up in. Pastor Rich, if you only knew the dysfunction that surrounded me. Pastor Rich, if you only knew the helplessness and the hopelessness and the despair that I live with. Pastor Rich, it goes on and on and on. And this I know to be true as well, that Jesus Christ is living. That the Holy Spirit has been sent. That there's a new future, a new possibility, a new reality, a new family that's available to you and I. What the evil one meant for your destruction, God can turn it around and make great good come out of it. And so we gather today in hope. We gather today with courage. We gather today with the truth that God wastes nothing. God is at work right here, right now. And all he invites us into is to open ourselves up to the work of his grace. If any person be in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. Amen.